Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. More Louis Armstrong. Buzz, 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 buzz. Skip it. Buzz, skip it. That's enough. Well, there I was. As seems to be my lot in life, I was wandering further and further downwards, hoping that the scribe of my misery would, like Jules Verne and Journey to the Center of the Earth, get bored of this plotline and Deus Ex Volcano me up to the surface and the lush green vineyards of southern Italy. Mmm. Could really go for some of that wine. Especially Sicilian wine. Because I am a snob and have developed a fine appreciation of the blood of gangsters. Alas, it would seem my divine author is just like every other author in this world. A most glorious bastard who doesn't know when to quit. Well, quit, you old bastard. Because I'm about to. It's almost like descending wasn't a good plan to escape from the center of the earth. No. I'm a genius, and the journey to the center of the earth sandwich was delicious, by the way. Thanks for asking. And don't pretend you tried it, because I would have gotten all the photos on the Twitters and the Instagrams and the mail. Why don't fans mail me anymore? Well, I get as stalker letters. Oh, well, butter my cheeks and slide me down a toaster. A volcano! Hooray for bored writers and dead-end plotlines. Now, where's the up button on this thing, said I. Lo, was that an earth-trembling pre-eruption rumble, or are you just happy to see me? Wait, no, tis not the volcano. Tis I! Tis time to make a new delicious word sandwich, my quiotes. Our last ration, the sun also rises by Ernest Hemingway. But first, as always, we have to wait for the yeast to rise. So while we seduce this volcano to turn it on, and nothing else, you sicko, I thought we'd talk a little bit about The New Yorker, my favourite magazine and soon-to-be sponsors. Yeah, I'm bold, and you need this boldness, New Yorker. You need me. But not nearly half as much as I've needed you. You see, my Kyotes, I was not always this free-wheeling, charismatic voice of God possessing you as I am today. This is when you notice that you have no technical device whatsoever. Forsooth, it was my job for three years to deliver magazines. The ever-uninspired new idea, the laughably conservative spectator, and of course, my beloved New Yorker. So somebody arrest me for flashing, because we're flashing back. My shifts began at the wee hour of 4am. No matter the weather, at that hour it always felt like I was coming to work in the rain. Rainy days, therefore, were like swimming to work. Then, for the next two hours, we handled the magazines. Pallets upon pallets, towering citadels of endless titles. It was hard work, Sisyphean work even. But at the end of that one sacred shift at fortnight, I would sit down with a copy of The New Yorker. I listened to a lot of Springsteen on these shifts, and audiobooks, so don't get me wrong, I was lucky to have this job. 
but the job was the job and nothing more. So when I'd read The New Yorker, that connection to a vast world of staggering intellect, culture, and emotion was soul-saving. Mmm, there's some honesty right there. Get out of my soul. We're 20,000 leagues too deep enough already. Get out of there. Anyway, The New Yorker is where I'd get my political fix. Boggling new insights, witty cartoons, intellectual criticism and evaluation of my interests, and of course, short fiction. Seriously, you get three free articles a month online with The New Yorker if you're not a subscriber. Use those three articles to read the fiction they release. Tis more enriching than homegrown vegetables, and more varied than a bag of Skittles. Therefore, vegetable Skittles, patent pending. And if that doesn't sell, then I guess I'm a poor salesman. Nothing? No? Very well, I'm a genius yet again. But what am I talking about? Where's the news, old Maddie? What exactly was that mushroom on Vern's sandwich? Ecstasy? Epiphany? Why, yes, it was both. And let me tell you, the pill for epiphany is thick. I've enjoyed our time with the news and the blues, oft one and the same, but I realized during this little trip down under, haha, that there isn't all too much value in me reading out articles you can read for yourself. If you want my kiotis, I can link y'all to articles I find interesting in the show notes, but for now, I think it is best to focus elsewhere. So please, on my Facebook, where I do most of my correspondence, let me know if you want me to do more news articles, or if you would just like me to link you to articles I find interesting throughout the weeks before I release episodes. Why, this yeast is sure taking a long time to rise, and this volcano is giving me the cold shoulder. And oh boy, is that a next level rejection right there. So back to the New Yorker talk, I guess. In my beloved New Yorker, I read The Confession by Layla Slamani. Layla. Got me on my knees, Layla. Tell me a story, please, Layla. Please don't sue me, Eric Clapton. I'm so small, and that was a funny joke. Any hoot, I thought it'd be fun to just shimmy down the skinny of these short stories that the New Yorker release. I'll tell you my thoughts, maybe try to sell the story to you if you haven't read it yet. And so, without further ado, here's the brass tacks of the literary sacks. The Confession is the tale of a wealthy, privileged, and unwittingly powerful son of a judge, a feared and respected man born on the fertile rural plains of this setting, and this son's terrible confession, his unbearable secret. And no, it's not that he puts hot sauce in his coffee. Only cool kids like me do that, and it ain't no secret. Tabasco sauce, if you're wondering. Gives it that extra kick, as if the instant coffee hot asphalt that I was drinking isn't kick enough. Fair warning, in most short stories I'm finding, especially in The New Yorker, they have a penchant for not naming their characters. On the boy's 16th summer, his father sends him to the hard countryside to learn how to live. There, he learned boredom, that silent corrupter of the human spirit. In his idleness, he becomes obsessed with the townsfolk's murmurings about a girl exiled from her clan because she sullied the honour of her village, apparently. Of course, like any rumour, this story blew wildly out of proportion, the mysterious vagabond more a detached serial than an actual living person in strife. Until one day, fair warning, Kiotis, here the tale falls to darkness faster than the romantic comedy Bus Stop starring Marilyn Monroe, which, by the way, is demented. So while out doing some minimal farm work with a fella named Arkor, in the fields, they spot the exiled peasant girl, a wandering as wanderers do. This one's for you, yelled Arkor, as he ran toward her. Yeah, dark. The poor girl was resigned to her fate, as everyone's most hated turd muncher, Arkor, more or less tackles her, and then offers her to our protagonist, who accepted without a word. 
Seriously, ju judging by the pace of this story, you can tell that very little thought was put into what he was about to do. And lo, he does the deed. She doesn't respond to him much. She turns away, but she doesn't fight it. But she fights against Arkor when he himself went for it. While the guilt-ridden protagonist deduces that the poor, ostracized, wandering peasant girl is hungry. Lo, the intelligence of a son of a judge, everybody. Here is a reminder that no matter where you're from, intelligence is not a given, nor inherited. Anyway, the heartless dopes give her some food, but nothing else, and leave her in the field. Tis at this point we start hearing of guilt, and what our protagonist thinks he should have done. At this point, I hate him. Just another entitled, self-centred and privileged Richie Rich leech that advertises moral values, but when the chips are down, wordlessly uses and abuses the world around them for their own pleasure, and more importantly, distraction. He goes back to the village and the story is spun and spun, exaggerated and lewd, getting congratulations and laughter from their fellow village men. Village men, by the way, sounds like a far less fun band than the village people. Fancy that. Soon enough, consequence free, the protagonist is living it up in posh universities in France, studying all day, drinking till he vomited, chasing girls. I was happy, he reflects. His forgetful summer distraction was one girl's trauma. Ugh. I want a revolt. Then he is quite literally haunted by a dream. He's riding in a carriage, and when the horse falls, the driver keeps beating it and pulling on its nostrils trying to get it back up, literally beating a dead horse. And he wakes up in a sweat with all the feeling and smells of that dream, one and the same with the memory of his terrible crime. Day and night, I would walk around, escorted by a feeling of sadness, by the consciousness of a crime I dared not speak. Anyway, it was well written. I rated this story 3.5 out of 5. Solid prose, decent pacing, solid prose, decent pacing, but the unlikability of the protagonist obscured the emotional empathy to the heavy burden of an unspeakable secret. There goes my stomach again, but I'm working it out, you tweedle-tum-tum! Oh, it's the volcano this time. Oh, there you go. Digging my cheeky short story review, eh? Does literary analysis make you hot and saucy? Very hot and saucy, it seems. Too hot and saucy! Oh, that's magma. Oh, that, that, that's magma. We're going up, Kyotis! Ride with me! <laughs> We're going up really, really fast, actually. Oh, what do I do, Hemingway? I'm scared. And lo, in my back pocket, my last scrap of salvation. Here's some advice from Papa. First, there must be talent. Much talent. Talent such as Kipling had. Then there must be discipline. The discipline of Flaubert. Then there must be the conception of what it can be, and an absolute conscience as unchanging as the standard meter in Paris, to prevent faking. Then the writer must be intelligent and disinterested, and above all, he must survive. Try to get all these in one person, and have him come through all the influences that press on a writer. The hardest thing, because time is so short, is for him to survive and get his work done. Wow, thanks Hemingway. 
Apart from the fact that it does nothing! I guess even Hemingway didn't ride a volcano to the Earth's surface. Score one to old Maddie. Damn powerful way to surmise the qualities of a writer, though. I myself am touched by the prospect of surviving long enough to tell my stories. As being a swashbuckler, I relate very personally to Errol Flynn, Douglas Fairbanks, and Hemingway himself. Alas, for all of whom the bell tolls tragically early, dying at 50, 56, and 61 respectively. But yeah, still trapped in a volcano. May as well use this heat to turn yeast to bread. It's the yeast I can do. <laughs> oh, a message flown in on the back of a cooked sparrow. Tis my producer. And we're cancelled. Bah! What was that? The point is, not even cancellation can stop me. Let's talk about The Riding of the Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Doing the bread, doing the bread, copywriting a lot of music. Gratefully, this isn't a parody of anything. Ha! Take that, you lawyers. Go back to your booze. Before we jump into this long and fascinating history behind the book and its impact, I just want to remark that I think Hemingway knew that this was his golden bullet to fame and success. He had published other works before, yet he knew that this was the one that would convince the world to pay attention to him. And so, I think it's just utterly swell that he dedicated the book to his first wife and ultimate love of his life, Hadley. I could say a lot about Hadley, as Hemingway himself did, but I'll leave it as Hemingway loved a lot of women in his life, but none were loved so much and so worthily as Hadley Richardson. To start this bread party off, my co-host will be that old heavyweight, Wikipedia. So in the 1920s, Hemingway lived in Paris as a foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star. Here, he had the best and blurst of times with Gertrude Stein, Pablo Picasso, F. Scott Fitzgerald, James Joyce, much more, and all the future cast of The Sun Also Rises. He had always wanted to write, but found that his work in journalism was something he greatly valued, in terms of the writing, that is. He wanted to use his journalism experience to write fiction, using short, declarative sentences that dished the facts, believing that a story could be based on real events when a writer distilled his own experiences in such a way that what he made up was truer than what he remembered. I'm remembering in the advice from Papa that I've been reciting that a big thing he valued was writing stories that came across as experiences for the reader. The Sun Also Rises is, in spades, one of those stories. With Dear Hadley, Hemingway first visited the festival of San Fermin in Pamplona, Spain, in 1923, where he was following his recent passion for bullfighting, Fun fact, among the Spanish, Hemingway achieved the rare privilege of being accepted as an aficionado in a culture that kept a firm line between their world and others. Curiously, it was at the age of 27, around the time of Fiesta, that he was given the nickname Papa, his ultimate mark of initiation into Spanish culture. On their third trip to Pamplona, they brought with them quite a different group, American and British expatriates. Hemingway's Michigan boyhood friend Bill Smith Stewart, recently divorced Duff Lady Twisden, her lover, Pat Guthrie, and Harold Loeb. These became Bill Gordon, Lady Brett Ashley, Mike Campbell, and Harry Conn, respectively. In Pamplona, the group quickly disintegrated. In true Hemingway fashion, the truth is similar to the book in a way that shows his famous and notorious penchant for exaggeration. It makes for a goddamn good story. In reality, Hemingway was attracted to Duff, was jealous of Loeb, because he had recently been on a romantic getaway with her over the weekend, much like Harry Conn was with Brett Ashley, and by the end of the week, the two men had a public fistfight. Oh, poor form, chaps. Very poor form. 
Against this background was the influence of the young matador from Ronda Cayetano Ordonez, whose brilliance in the bullring affected the spectators. Ordonez honoured Hemingway's wife by presenting her from the bullring the ear of a bull he killed. Charming. Outside of Pamplona, the fishing trip to the Arati River, near Bougat in Navarre, was marred by polluted water. Damn. In the book, it reads like the reason one would bother with fishing in the first place. Oh well, there's another dream destroyed. Who needs them? I guess. Hemingway had intended to write a non-fiction book about bullfighting. He later did in life, and this was called Death in the Afternoon, which is also, coincidentally, my favourite drink. It is a mix of, amongst other liqueurs and little dashes, primarily absinthe and French champagne. Delish. However, after their trip to Pamplona with the expatriates, he decided that the week's experiences presented him with enough material for a novel. If only when my friendships disintegrated it gave me material for a novel. All I get is paid assassins after me, and who wants to read about that? A few days after the fiesta ended, on his birthday, the 21st of July, he began writing what would eventually become The Sun Also Rises. By 17th August, with 14 chapters written and a working title Fiesta Chosen, he returned to Paris, for where else does one finish a masterpiece? Probably everywhere. But Paris is much romantico. He finished the draft on 21st September 1925, writing a foreword the following weekend and changing the title to The Last Generation. So if you're wondering, he began 21st July 1924 and finished the draft 21st of September 1925. A very nice and neat 14 months. Another fun fact, F. Scott Fitzgerald advised Hemingway to trim at least 2,500 words from the opening sequence, which is about 30 pages long. Hemingway wired the publishers, telling them to cut the opening 30 pages altogether. Man of conviction, he was. The result was a novel without a focused starting point, which was seen as a modern perspective and critically well-received. A few months later, in December 1925, Hemingway and his wife spent the winter in Schrunz, Austria, where he began reviving the manuscript extensively. This is where Hemingway made a very stupid mistake. To me, the way I read his arc, writing a movable feast at the end of his life was him coming to terms with this mistake himself, realising to his core that he loved Hadley completely and threw everything they had away for nothing. Oh well, such is life. Don't be so hard on yourself, Papa. Here we have Pauline Pfeiffer, who joined them in January and, against Hadley's advice, urged him to sign a contract with Scribner's. Always listen to Hadley. It was around this time where it was clear in old Maddie's book that Pauline was attracted to Hemingway, as she was pretty much staying with them, becoming friends with both Hadley and the Hemingway's son, Jack Bumby Hemingway, to the point that it wasn't sus at all that she was around all the time, getting to know him more and more. Hemingway left Austria for a quick trip to New York to meet with the publishers, and on his return, during a very unnecessary stop in Paris, he began an affair with Pauline. Oh, Ernest, no... There's this terribly poignant moment in the play about Hemingway in Cuba, where he tells the story of getting off the train after he had left Pauline, who he stayed with much later than he needed to, and rejoining Hadley and Bumby in Schrunz. As they waited for him on the platform, they were both all swaddled up and eager for his coming back to them. Boy, I love this titan of literature, but this was a truly awful thing and he knew it. The worst thing about all this is that the inferiority complex and the psychological pattern of rejecting others before they can reject him is something he never did conquer within himself. Moving on, he returned to Schrunz to finish the revisions in March. In June, he was in Pamplona with both Richardson and Pfeiffer. As you'd imagine, here it was not going well on either front, and a choice had to be made. Pamplona seems to be the place for breaking points, where it all comes to boil. It must be frightfully hot there. On their return to Paris, Richardson asked for a separation, and left for the south of France. In August, alone in Paris, Hemingway completed the proofs, dedicating the novel to his wife and son. 
During this period, Hadley wanted to give them a chance. In my view, she understood Hemingway and the core psychological reason of why he did what he did, and said that if he still wants to be with Pauline after 100 days alone, that means no Pauline, nor Hadley, she would give him a quick, painless divorce. The implication is that during that 100 days, he probably could have gone back to Hadley, asked for forgiveness, and got it. Around the 80-day mark, I think it was, after the publication of the book in October, Hadley asked for a divorce. She sent him a very, very touching letter in which she pretty much says she understands him, she loves him, but she's giving him up. Hemingway subsequently gave her the book's royalties. You don't have to like him, Quixotes, but I hope you understand him and can give him some kudos. So that's the official background. But what of the juicier stuff? We want this to be the most scrumptious bread around. You can't just have simply multigrain again. You'll start to realise I don't know anything about the culinary arts. Or literature. Oh, don't worry, old Maddie, I'll edit that out. They'll never know. So here's some anecdotes, stories, and just fun background on The Sun Also Rises. Like when some hack during the 1920s was making his living by reselling Hemingway's short stories at the same time his were in circulation. Now that salts my vinegar. There's stealing, and there's stealing. Here we go. In the words of Papa, there was another name writer who used to steal my short stories as fast as I could write them, change the names of the characters and the locales and sell them for more money than I got. But I found a way to stop him. I quit writing for two years and the son of a bitch starved to death. One wonders if old Papa was working on his first novel during this time he quit writing. Because I dare say the man with more discipline than even Flaubert does not simply quit writing. I mean... In his lifetime, the man wrote at least seven novels and at least 88 short stories. Although, when it comes to Hemingway quitting writing, some might wish he had. Now, personally, I consider The Sun Also Rises a masterwork, a wonder of character study in a story that absolutely achieves Hemingway's goal of becoming an experience that happened to me. I went to the fiesta. I was in a tragically doomed romance with Lady Brett Ashley. I drank too much. I definitely drank too much. However, for some particular others, the book actually did happen to them, and they weren't none too pleased to have their tumultuous week of drama and shenanigans in writing, no matter how well written it was. Some people are never happy. Anyway, according to Hemingway, this was how the real people, the real Harry Conn, the real Lady Ashley, and Mike Campbell reacted none too kindly to the book. Pretty sure Bill was fine with his depiction, considering he's a top-notch guy the whole way through and a hell of a fishing buddy. As said by Ernest Hemingway, The day after The Sun Also Rises was published, Ernest said, I got word that Harold Loeb, who was the Robert Kahn of the book, had announced that he would kill me on sight. Gah zoots! Ernest's enemies read quick. Now I'm quite lucky. My enemies won't come after me till the movie adaption. In which case, catch me on my private plane. Anyway, back to Papa's vendettas. I sent him a telegram to the effect that I would be here in the hole in the wall for three consecutive evenings so he'd have no trouble finding me. As you can see, I chose this joint because it is all mirrors. All four walls. And if you sit in this booth at the back, you can see whoever comes in the door and all their moves. I waited out the three days, but Harold didn't show. About a week later, I was eating dinner at Lips in St. Germain, which is also heavily mirrored, when I spotted Harold coming in. I went over and put out my hand. And Harold started to shake hands before he remembered we were mortal enemies. Side note, that is so Harry Conn. I really feel like I know him. Unfortunately, the entitled walking rain cloud he was. He yanked his hand away and put it behind his back. I invited him to have a drink, but he refused. Never is actually what he said. Okay, I said, resuming my seat. 
then drink alone. He left the restaurant, and that was the end of that vendetta. Wow, what a fearsome vendetta. Still better than paid assassins. Now, the true story of Lady Bread Ashley is that she died in New Mexico. There's an unfortunate epilogue for you readers. Still not as bad as the Peter Pan epilogue. If you've read it, you know it's a nightmare, and there's a reason no movie has ever shown it. But it's canon, Kiotis. Back to Brett. Call her Lady Duff twice, Dan, if you like, but I can only think of her as Brett. Tuberculosis. She was 43. Her pallbearers had all been her lovers. Because Brett sure knew how to play her cards the way she wanted to play her cards, yo. She was like a femme fatale with all the control and didn't even need a gun. On leaving the church, where she had a proper service, one of the grieving pallbearers slipped on the church steps and the casket dropped and split open. Okay, this is a pretty harsh epilogue. Part of me wonders if this is a kind of posthumous revenge on Hemingway's part in terms of his exaggeration. Still not nearing Peter Pan levels of brutality, though. Back to the Sun also rises background, though. Hemingway, stop distracting me with fun tidbits and Peter Pan. Those days with Lady Duff Twisdown ruined poor Loeb for the rest of his life. That and one other thing. He was an authentic Guggenheim, but never got one of his recommendations approved. Not one. There's rejection for you in spades. Now I looked it up, Kiotis. I have no idea what Guggenheim means. Apparently it's a big museum in America, so maybe he's saying that Harold Loeb was a descendant of the Guggenheim family? I don't know. It was a very out-of-place quote. Probably shouldn't have included it. But, you know, I'm trying to get as much interesting stuff into this as possible. Because, you know, revamp. You know value. Moving on. We see here how Hemingway's memory, especially long-term when he's had time to spin it, worked. In his view, he never treated Robert Conn, Harry Loeb with nothing but straight frankness and respect. And to Hemingway's mind, all of Harry's downfall was on Harry. I'm inclined to mostly agree, but I also note how behind all this respectful recollection, Hemingway makes a hell of a point to highlight Loeb's failures in a way that ties the man's memory to failure and weakness. Never letting it be forgotten that Hemingway is the success and Loeb is the broken failure, as depicted in the book. You have to remember that Hemingway was in the fistfight with Harold Loeb at the actual fiesta. Hemingway was the one that was jealous, and Hemingway was the one that lost. Further asked whether anyone other than Con and Ashley were based on real people, Hemingway responded with, Sure, the whole mob. And lo, we see how exactly the book feels so real. And when you're done reading it, you need a long rest after a long partying week away. Based on, Hemingway emphasizes, not exact. Pat Swayze was the closest. He was Mike Campbell in the book. They should get Patrick Swayze, obviously, for the next film adaptation. You know, for accuracy. Bill Smith, who was an awfully good guy I used to fish with, was pretty much Bill Gordon. Now, who would have guessed that? And Jake Barnes? Well, hell. Jake, when I was in the Italian army, I had been nicked in the scrotum by a piece of shrapnel and had spent some time in the genital care ward. And all those poor bastards who had had everything blown off, most of them from antipersonal mines that were rigged to hit between the legs, on the irrefutable Hun theory that nothing takes a soldier out faster than to have his balls shot off. If anyone ever asks, which was the more brutal war? I like to add this little horror story, because World War I had, if nothing else on the other wars, the worst form shown thanks to little shit bits like this tidbit. One little thing I found interesting was when the interviewer noted that Jake, in fact, had not had his balls shot off. Apparently this was an important fact. Yes, we're still on genitals. It's all literature and thematic, I swear. Back to balls. No, he didn't have his balls shut off, and that was very important to the kind of man he was. His testicles were intact, that was all he had, but this made him capable of feeling everything a normal man feels but not able to do anything about it. 
that was the wound. That the wound was a physical wound, and not a psychological wound, was the vital thing. Alas, tis like our boy Jake was trapped in a sexy prison within himself. Humor aside, it all sounds a bit crude, yes, but I think it's an inspired story device to have a protagonist like this, one who understands attraction, love, sex, but can't do anything about it, and is left only with striving for an emotional connection again and again, only to halt at that final barrier of loving expression and move on to the next, constantly distracting, constantly living, constantly in search for a meaning beyond the love he had, but can never keep. Drama. Now, please notice there that I did my level best not to mention the term lost generation. Now, it is indeed true that the fact that Jake Barnes, a World War I veteran, cannot reproduce does connote that there is literally a whole lost generation because of the war, on top of the metaphorical wayward hedonism of the main characters. However, especially if one has a more debauched life, these characters were not really come across as lost as such, misguided or nihilistic maybe, but they know where they're at no matter how glum their outlook. This is because it was Gertrude Stein's idea to add the whole lost generation shtick. Her proclamation, as Hemingway puts it. Bit of backstory here. Gertrude Stein was one of Ernest's main artistic sponsors in the early Paris days, especially with the release of The Sun Also Rises. But because of them being two very large personalities, Hemingway's superstardom versus Gertrude Stein's career decline, their friendship crumbled. I am regretful to say I have not read Stein's work myself, and cannot comment on her literary quality, but personally, I am grateful for her work in supporting the local innovators, outsiders, and most daring artists of her time, especially Ernest Hemingway. So when remembering this lost generation pronouncement, Papa snapped that Gertrude was repeating what some garage keeper in the midi had told her about his apprentice mechanics. Un generation per deux. Well, with Gertrude, a pronouncement was a pronouncement was a pronouncement. In Hemingway's words... I only used it in front of the sun also rises so I could counter it with what I thought. That passage from Ecclesiastes. That sound lost. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to the place where he arose. According to Hemingway, this was a solid endorsement for Mother Earth, and a solid endorsement for the sun. Now, personally, I always imagined the moon to be a she, so perhaps, Quixotes, Hemingway just saw the sun as a he, which is curious. Anyway, back to Hemingway throwing shade at Gertrude Stein, shall we? Look, Gertrude was a complainer, he said. I have read of this from other sources, curiously enough. It seemed in her later years she burnt a lot of bridges, which is quite sad, and bad, and not so rad. So Gertrude labelled that generation with her complaint. But it was bullshit. There was no movement, no tight band of pot-smoking nihilists wandering around looking for mummy to lead them out of the da-da wilderness. What there was was a lot of people who had not been through the war, and either wished they had been, or wished they were writing, or boasted about not being in the war. Nobody I knew at that time thought of himself as wearing the silks of the lost generation, or had even heard of the label. We were a pretty solid mob. The characters in The Sun Also Rises were tragic, but the real hero was the Earth and you get the sense of it abiding forever. Well, tuck me into bed under some philosophical silk bed sheets. To be honest, I have loved The Sun Also Rises for a long time. Indeed, it was my favourite Hemingway for a while, but I never saw the tragic pettiness and waywardness of the characters as a comment on the eternal steadfast nature of the Earth itself before. I mean, take me out of the oven, because I am done. 
So that leaves us Quixotes with finally deciding on a bread for our delicious word sandwich. Because of the Spanish background to this book, as well as being a great beginning for Hemingway's literary career, even though it's technically also the ending of many friendships in his first marriage, I've decided to choose the Spanish traditional bread, pan basico. You can form this bread into a baguette, or batter, as the Spanish say, or into one large round object. If you divide the dough even more, it can make two mini rounds, which is all the better for sharing with friends who will soon declare vendettas upon you. This bread is never absent on a Spanish table, and it's an easy Spanish bread recipe as a very basic white bread, which is perfect because it is a colourful, unique, expatriate white bread, much like Hemingway himself. Time is a waste in Quixotes, and I can see the opening of the volcano up ahead. I'm about to come out one way or the other. I hope it's not the other, because that sounds like going out the Earth's ass. And so here comes the meat. Jake Barnes and his expatriate friends live in the topsy-turvy, hedonistic, sensual, and self-indulgent world of post-World War I Paris. There, they occasionally work, but spend most of their time partying, drinking, and arguing. I mean, it's like living in West End. Every night, there seems to be someone in the neighborhood keen to go out to the bars. Don't tempt me, Frodo! Every night. From Jake's perspective, we meet the cast of characters that populate this story. The most important among them being Robert Conn, a weak-willed, down-on-his-luck, Princeton grad and unsuccessful writer, and Lady Brett Ashley, an exciting, beautiful, and unpredictable British divorcee. Definitely because of the way he's written, Robert Conn is completely unlikable. He's a leech that is transparent in his droll jealousies and resentments, and I just couldn't stand him, as I was meant not to be able to do. What I will address, however, is that when the characters point out his Jewish heritage as yet another derogatory point, it was a step too far, and I think Hemingway was just looking for things to hate about him in particular. A kind of literary, and another thing, which was truly unnecessary, as most of the lines like this are completely superfluous. Lady Braid Ashley, meanwhile, is a fascinating study, one of Hemingway's most fully realised women. In a way, she's just as tragic as Jake, and you believe that they could really be happy together if life wasn't as trash as it can be sometimes. Although Jake and Brett are actually in love, they aren't together, presumably because of a mysterious war wound that has rendered Jake impotent. However, thanks to behind-the-scenes Quixotes, we have the rare privilege of knowing that Jake probably lost his thang to shrapnel. Yay. Con falls in love with Brett, as everyone does except that champ Bill, and despite the fact that she's not terribly impressed with him, she secretly goes on a trip with him to the Spanish resort town of San Sebastian, and he will not shut up about it. It was a very brief and unimportant affair. I think from her view, she was entertaining the notion of being with him. He does come from money in a time where there is little after all, and had a high education, so it could be interesting. But as we know, intelligence and being interesting is neither given nor inherited. It is earned. As a consequence of this trip, alas, Con is still infatuated with Brett. He's completely smitten. We're talking truly, madly, deeply in smit. Like she'll be talking to her fiancé and he'll be standing over her, waiting for her to notice him. It's most disconcerting. Speaking of the fiancé, in my opinion, he's awesome. And that is not at all influenced by the fact he was played by my boy Errol Flynn in the 1957 movie. Flynn did so good, my Quixotes. Ugh, gush. Unfortunately for Con, and I guess for Jake, Brett is engaged to a wealthy, charming, and utterly inept drunkard named Mike. Although he is all of these things, I truly find Michael damn likeable in the book, and despite himself, Jake does too. 
Also, Jake's whimsical friend Bill returns to Paris from a trip, and a plan is born. Everyone agrees to decamp to Spain for some fishing and the running of the bulls in Pamplona. Boy, what a great plan. On their brief fishing trip, Bill and Jake have a splendid time communing with nature and with each other. It's a trip at a scale of comfort that any should hope they can find such a bliss. I mean, they stay by a stream, right? Where they fish, nap and drink wine, and the wine they can just put in the water by some rocks, because it can chill in the water while they sit in the most comfortable clothes because it's just perfect weather. Hot on the surface, but not too hot, and just beautifully, refreshingly cool in the water. Mm -mm -mm. Damn, those fish would be happy to be caught. That's how good life is. It just doesn't even matter. All the same, the relaxation quickly comes to an end. They return to civilization and meet up with Brett, Mike, and Con in Pamplona for a week-long orgy of bullfights, alcohol, and high drama. And let me tell you, Kiotis, orgy is the right word, but not for the dirty reasons. Jake has a true passion for bullfighting, but everyone else is simply there to have a good time. They kind of do. With all the drama, it still looks fun. Especially when they walk around day and night with these wine sacks full of red wine, and they could just shoot it into the back of their mouth, slapping the hot wine down the roof of their mouth, and it just slides gently down the gullet. Mmm, lifelong dream right there. Brett begins a scandalous affair with a passionate and talented young bullfighter, Pedro Romero. Jake feels terrible for many reasons. Among them is the fear that he has corrupted Romero in some way by introducing him to Brett. I'm not sure what he means by this. Does he mean that Brett's not good enough for him being a bullfighter? Or does he mean that a bullfighter should never fall in love and they should be completely devoted to the bulls? Unworthy. In any case... She is allegedly ruining his focus throughout the festival, as his performance gets worse and worse, which is tantamount to sacrilege, as she is seen as spoiling a premier fighter. Con's thwarted infatuation with Brett leads to arguments with everyone, and finally, he beats the unfortunate Romero to a bloody pulp. More sacrilege! This causes the Spanish to renounce Jake as one of their own. As the fiesta winds down, everyone leaves Pamplona in various states of anxiety, depression, and frustration. Jake heads to San Sebastian, where he intends to decompress alone for a while. Good move. Unfortunately, desperate telegrams from Brett arrive immediately. He dashes gallantly to her in Madrid, where she is alone, having sent Romero away. For the first time, Brett is truly vulnerable, afraid, and guilty. The future looks just as bleak. Jake and Brett agree again that, even though they love each other, they can't be together. It's a truly tragic sequence, but at the same time, it's also beautiful because you can see how well these two people on a very essential level understand each other. One final little note about the plot of this book that I greatly enjoy is the way that these friends just gallivant around Europe like it's no big deal. For me, there are borders everywhere, but for them, they could just get into a car, drive and drive, fly maybe, and it didn't matter. They could be in Paris one day, Spain the next, back in Paris, into London. Europe was their playground, their drunken, sordid playground. So what meat shall this be? To be honest, looking back, I would not have chosen steak for the bell jar by Sylvia Plath. One day I shall remedy that error of judgment, for looking between the snows of Kilimanjaro and here at Fiesta, it is now clear what is a steaky, delicious word sandwich, and what is not. I really wanted to avoid doing steak again, Kiotis, and I think I have found a way. Being a story about bullfighting, and thus about blood, life and death, the aftermath of war, and losing friendship and loves in a drunken haze of reckless passion, while all being firmly written in a meticulously paced, some would say slow, style, I have selected roast beef. 
marinated in red wine, preferably Spanish red wine. If you can shoot that wine from a wineskin pouch, all the better. And now moving on to cheese. Well, I've made it to the top of this volcano. Can't see much beyond the trees surrounding me. So I'm going to have to work my way down the side of the volcano, see if I can find some local people, and like in Jules Verne's journey to the center of the earth, be hailed as a hero and taken back home. This stump for a hand I have is probably going to scare those nice people. I should find something that's a bit less intimidating. Hmm. Hmm. Hark? What's that over there? Is that a wandering bear? Ooh, I wonder if I'm in, like, North America or something. I could pop by the old Hemingway house. And the bear's seen me. Nice bear. I'm gonna call you Winnie the Pooh. And nope, you're coming after me. Alright. While this bear is chasing me through the woods, how about we quickly just brush through the cheese and then we'll move on to hopefully salvation and not killed by a bear. That's a more anticlimactic ending than the ending to Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. And that's a hard act to beat, Jules. For Jake Barnes, the main protagonist of The Sun Also Rises, I think Jake ultimately represents the aimlessness and perpetual dissatisfaction of the post-World War I era. He was permanently marked by the war, and as he says with the line, everyone's sick, he knows he is not alone. Most of the time, he carries this quietly and stoically in stride, but when he lets his guard down, what's revealed are his hidden inner passions, his anger at the world, and his true lost sense of hope as he is trapped in the shadow of the war forever. What was also most interesting about Jake, on top of all of his love for bullfighting representing his fascination with the meaninglessness of life and death, is how Hemingway built him up into his own ideal of what his idea of masculinity should be, what it is to be a man, in Hemingway's opinion. And then, by giving him this injury, it leaves him with all the spirit of this ideal man, but unable to act on any of these ideals, unable to feel whole as a man, both physically and spiritually. Jake is an emblem of an entire generation damaged by the trauma of a war of a global scale, the likes of which no one had ever seen before. All of the other characters are similarly incomplete in terms of their spirit, all struggle with these feelings of incompleteness, inadequacy, and spiritual impotency. The most pressing example of this among the others is Brett. With the love of her life impotent, and too much of a realist to believe it would ever work out, she hides her true emotional, broken depths under layers upon layers of debonair flippancy, debauchery, and endless distraction with meaningless fraternizations. All of these characters are damaged by traumas and broken promises, wandering through a world that simply is not fair. Except Bill. Man, what a swell fella. As a result of all this, I've concluded that these characters, except Bill, when amalgamated, turn into a cheese form of melted, aged to fondue-like bitterness, Fontina cheese. This is a cheese from the Italian Alps, sorry, not Spanish, out of cow milk that is taken as raw and fresh as possible, like Hemingway's stories and his characters. And when aged, it becomes a very nicely meltable, bitter, rich, and creamy flavour with a nutty tone, like the nuttiness that is the Pamplona Fiesta, and I guess Jake's symbolic nuts, you children. So melt this cheese on your roast beef, marinated in red wine, and we'll see what we got from there. Melted Fontina cheese for our amorphous, spirited cast of The Sun Also Rises. Now onto our sauce, our themes, and a bear battle, I think. I'll let you know how that goes after this break. (laughs) 
Fighting the bear was a terrible mistake. You heard it here first on Delicious Word Sandwich. Brand new, hot off the news topic. They will, and I repeat, they will defeat you. They do not obey the rules of boxing. They definitely don't obey the rules of karate. And they brought a gun to a knife fight. Here's a quick summary of what happened. The bear came at me. I tried standing still, arousing no attention, no offense. It stood up on its legs. In all the movies, when they, you know, scare bears off, nonsense. Winnie the Pooh was savage, and he showed no quarter. He lunged at me. I darted back. I jabbed twice into the schnauzel. He furrowed his brow, grimaced, and then lashed with everything he got, taking my other hand in the process, I'm afraid. Yes, Kiotes, I am now handless. But don't worry. There is no pause for alarm. <laughs> We're already cancelled by the producer for puns, so he, he can't cancel me twice. Who ever heard of a show being cancelled twice? So what happened was, realizing that he was not a proper boxer, bringing claws to a boxing match, I tried karate. It didn't work. So I drew my knife. Yes, I have a knife now. I borrowed it from one of the tombs in the catacombs. I think it was some knights or whatever. Usually it's been used to spread butter and other condiments on my delicious word sandwiches, but in this case I used it to hew the front paws off this bare assailant as it lunged at me. Realizing that it was now handless itself, it pulled from its furry belly because it clearly had some sort of kangaroo-like pouch being some sort of mutant hybrid. It drew an M16 and, and aimed with it lodged in its mouth firmly. I was aghast, as obviously anyone would. Why would this bear choose the M16 as its weapon of choice? Everyone knows it jams. Well, sure enough, that whole M16 did me a solid and jammed up solid itself. Using the opportunity, I've managed to flee into the woods, and I'm trying to find my way to some sort of civilization. I'm figuring, if I keep running in a straight line, I'm bound to find salvation somehow. Either the sea, death, or people. Not sure which one of those is the better option. Probably the sea. Anyway, what is the sun also rises all about? What is the point of everything I have said? What is the cause? The true essence of the delicious word sandwich. There are a lot of themes in this Hemingway novel, as you'd expect. I mean, as we know from the snows of Kilimanjaro, he can fit a lot in a story. So, summing up, the Sun Also Rises themes include themes of dissatisfaction, as we've seen with Jake Barnes and Lady Brett Ashley having a true love that they can never truly embrace. We have themes of people struggling with identity. As we've seen, Jake struggles with his identity in terms of his sense of masculinity and manhood. Lady Brett Ashley struggles with her identity as a, f a person complete as a woman and as a soul because she can't love who she wants to love and she has no idea what she wants to do with her life. Neither does Jake, neither does Mike. Bill probably is solid and Robert Conn has absolutely no idea. They're all people who think they have their public images worked out, but they're really just a big old messes inside. Uh, drugs and alcohol. All of the characters in The Sun Also Rises are serious drinkers. Yes, even Bill. Drinking pretty much for the entirety of their time at the fiesta, Jake Barnes drinks quite a bit with Bill when they're fishing in the first part of the book. In this story, you really see how alcoholism, and I'm afraid it is pretty much full-blown alcoholism, 
is a crutch for these people's public persona, as well as being used as a drug to take away some of the pain that they feel on an identity, spiritual, and psychological basis. Failed love, of course, is a big theme here, cynicism. We have man in the natural world. Jake Barnes and Bill having an idyllic time, completely peaceful, carefree, out in the nature. And then when they're in the cities and fiesta, it's a quiet hell. It's not even quiet. It booms into dramatic, high-tension hell. We have Exile. All of the main characters in the book are expatriates. They've all abandoned their home country for whatever shenanigans lie in Europe. While each of them are defined by their roots, none of them feel like they can go home. None of them want to go home. None of them even feel like they have a home. They're truly lost exiles looking for some kind of sense of belonging, some sort of sense of self, and there's just none to be found. Finally, there's warfare. World War I. It looms over the entire book, an event that no one dares talk about. Yet, in the 1957 film, there's a flashback sequence with Tyrone Powers' Jake Barnes at the hospital after he's wounded in World War I. And let me tell you, it takes away so much of the impact of World War I in this book. One of Hemingway's core writing successful experiments was the art of omission. The idea of omitting something you know is omitted, because if you don't know it, it's a whole, but omitting something you know is omitted and implying it through everything else in the novel and leaving it unsaid solidifies it in the imagination of the reader way better than any written word can and it heightens the impact to meteoric proportions. And by showing it in the movie, World War One's threat and kind of mythic reality that shadows over everyone's soul in this story is taken away with this kind of banal image of what it was like to be wounded in World War One. This story really kind of solidifies what World War One was to a lot of people. It was this haunting, nightmarish idea that was just constantly in the shadows in the, in the rooms of their minds. Watching, taunting even, scarring. Yeah, cheery book. I, I swear, it, it's funny, I'm being quite dire right now, but it's really a lot of fun. As for a source for all of these themes, well, I will confess, I'm a little lost. On this sandwich, we already have a nice red wine marination. We have melted cheese, and we're going to have some other stuff. So, I've decided I'm going to include some, you know, salads. Maybe some slices of tomato. A bit of lettuce. Chuck them on there. Really get that kind of European, varied, expatriate. Things of all shapes and sizes onto the one sandwich. And we can do that now because I'm out of the catacombs. I'm in nature. I can pick whatever I want. I can live. Although if you think for one second I'm going to stop eating books, think again. But for a sauce, I think I'm going to keep it simple. I think I'm going to add, to try and summarize, you know, these drugs and alcohol, dissatisfaction, men and masculinity, love, natural world versus the cities, and warfare, something harsh, something cynical, something brutal. I'm going to choose a dash of red wine and vinegar. Not too much, just enough to give it the whole sandwich that kind of twist, that kind of harsh, tangy, dramatic twist. Meanwhile, on the bear front, he started climbing trees looking for the high ground. He's attached a quite impressive glow sight scope, and he is prowling across the tree line looking for movement. I've got to be very still and try and sneak away. How many twigs are in this forest? Oh, it's a forest. God damn it! I gotta run, Kiotis. I'll let you know how this goes when I reach the sea. Or death, or the people. Let's find out with seasoning. 
our final thoughts on this whole shebang. Ha 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 ha, the bear can't reload the gun without his paws, which I have meanwhile tied to my own stumps, so now my hands are big bear claws, and I think that's an improvement. Yeah, score two for old Maddie this episode. Now, on to the important things. What's a seasoning that is a rich experience, peppy with lost layered characters, and overall a beautifully honest book? about travelling with wayward souls to an unknown and hopeless tomorrow. Hmm. I asked this question on my Facebook page, and no one responded, so here's a reminder, my Kiotis, if you're out there, if you want more delicious word sandwich to go strong with passion, collaborating with you, because I want to collaborate with you, I want to make the most delicious sandwiches we can, please, send me a message on the Facebooks. Hit me up on Instagram, and I'll try to remember to check it. Do the Twitters! The Tweets! I can do that, I think, maybe. Hmm, I'm old Maddie after all. Old Maddie's not that great with Twitter. Anyway, as I've made clear, this is one of my favourite books. This is definitely one of my favourite Hemingways. It's a book you can read within 24 hours, because even though on the surface it seems just like a bunch of people talking and drinking and drama, it's incredibly energetic and honest and immersive. It's just such an experience, and I recommend it to anyone who's interested in reading, and especially anyone who's interested in honest books. And so, with all of this, with the pep, with the richness, with the cynicism, overall, with the punch and honesty that this book has, I decided that chili salt was the seasoning for our delicious word sandwich. And in conclusion, that means, for our bread, we have the Spanish traditional bread pan basico. For our meat, or meat substitute, we have red wine marinated roast beef. Chuck on some tomato and lettuce in tribute to the Spanish Tomato Festival, hydration, and just general health, because I don't think we have had salad on a sandwich yet. So, how's that? Score three for old Maddie. Health. A dash of red wine vinegar and chili salt. And there you have it, my friends. The Sun Also Rises Sandwich. I would like to appreciate this for a moment. This is the first time I've looked out onto the world since my own death on Mount Kilimanjaro. And though I'm pursued by a machine gun-toting handless bear, and I now have bear claws for hands, I think life is pretty good. And even though the world of the sun also rises is harsh, I think life and this whole world is pretty good. Even though politics is a shambles, the environment's going to hell, and who can say how many times the sun will rise for humanity? I think we should always make sure we appreciate every time it does, for it is always an honor and a privilege and a joy. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to the place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Farewell, my Kyotis.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 